You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is episode 62, The Creatures of Medieval Maps and Bestiaries. I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always... So today's gonna be a bit different than our usual episodes, so less about animal bones, although I guess there's a lot of episodes we do that aren't really about animal bones, so not that different than some of our other episodes, I guess. That's all right. People come here for the animal bones and they stay for the video games and just miscellaneous animals. Yeah, so today is going to be one of those days, although not about video games. So less about animal bones and remains and more about kind of how animals were viewed and described in the past, which is, you know, obviously still quite important due to its implications for how animals would obviously be treated in the past as well. Yes, and I mean, we have to bear in mind as well that both uh, the maps and bestiaries that we'll be covering, especially in the medieval period, are useful reflections of an intensely religious world that was also grappling with their understanding of natural history. So it's also like interesting to see how these two things come together. Yes, yeah, so you have medieval maps, which were mainly sketches produced for a particular occasion or reason instead of kind of a general reference map. So like what we normally would think of when we think of maps, you know, they were basically single purpose in use. So for example, for maybe a specific navigator or for a scholar that's trying to learn about a foreign land and its customs. So this was especially used for regions of interest at the time, such as the Middle East and Asia. And also the thing with medieval maps is that the east tended to be at the top rather than the north, with Jerusalem depicted at, at the, as the centre for reasons you can all guess. So the, the importance of the east in this case was sort of twofold, because not only that was where the sun would rise, but it was also where medieval Christian looked for the return of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you have maybe what other people really think about if we talk about, you know, older, more historical maps in this case, which are, you know, maps that depict the sea. And these were often illustrated with various sea creatures and monsters, you know, likely reflecting the vast unexplored nature of the oceans at the time. Now, most of these maps were usually just for display by wealthy people with depictions of creatures often informed by stories from, you know, otherwise uneducated sailors. Sorry, we can actually carry on our saga of like wealthy people showing off their collections because I believe many episodes <laughs> ago we had one that had accumulated a range of various sort of exotic uh, underlined with inverted commas several times, foul. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, of course. Yes, so, definitely. We just to go kind of a foul collection. It's less about the accuracy and more about some real collector mentality, I guess. But interestingly, even though you know we think about sea monsters in these maps that were primarily hoarded and kept and displayed by wealthy people, the sea monsters would actually begin to disappear from maps starting with the 18th century due to better understandings of oceanic navigation. Illustrations were then actually used for more useful things, such as good fishing areas, so there'd be like several fish depicted where those places were found, or places of safe passage where you'd usually see like you know, a, a ship that's looking very nice and kind of passing through. So you knew that you weren't going to probably get into a shipwreck if you sail there. I mean, it's safe to say that as time goes by, maps become increasingly more utilitarian in function. Yeah. And of course, the type of maps that we'll be discussing in this episode in particular are the Mappe Mundi, which are a, a specific type of medieval European maps that actually depicted the entire world, hence the name uh, Mappe Mundi being Map of the World or at least the world through the lens of a medieval European, obviously, which they didn't tend to be just about the geography per se, but they were also portraying information about sort of spirituality and folklore and often depict the world post-Great Flood. 
uh, showcasing the three continents that were founded by Noah's sons in the form of a wheel, which are also known as a T and an O map, as it often depicts a wheel or O shape with a T shape inside of it. Of course, the regions included at the time would have pretty much equated to Europe, Asia and North Africa. What's interesting is that there were absolutely loads of the map and we still about, have about 1,100 surviving today. Yeah, it's pretty good. I would have assumed there was a lot less, to be honest. How does paper keep that long? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it. But when I was kind of doing some of the research for this, I realized a lot of the kind of maps we still have, some of them are kept at one of my old workplaces, the J.P. Morgan Library and Museum. And I do know that it's a really intense conservation lab there. I do believe the time when I was working there, we had one of the Gutenberg Bibles. So there's loads of very fragile materials there. So yeah, it, it would have to probably need a pretty intense conservation for that. That's the thing, because paper is a nightmare. So like the fact that they're being preserved now, I can see, because we have the knowledge and the science behind it. But how did that piece of paper make it in all of those centuries where conservation techniques weren't exactly a thing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think, unfortunately, I guess some of it probably is because a lot of these things were hoarded by wealthy people that have the resources at the time to, you know, make sure that they weren't or as as well kept as they could be at the time, which is probably I mean, it's kind of why some of these fall into museums, private collections and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it is really impressive how many do survive today. Of course, another sort of what or say topic that we'll be covering <laughs> as per title medieval bestiaries which is quite literally it's a it's a book of beasts which includes various details of animals such as description of their physical appearance their behavior their habits so essentially is an early resource for natural history a close approximation to <laughs> that for the time period depending on the bestiaries uh, uh, this, yes uh, the degrees of closeness to actual natural history is variable, we'll say. These also tended to include moral lessons involving said animals. So I guess in a way, like the creature was used as a parable almost, as it was believed at the time that all of nature was designed by God to instruct humans on how to live. And therefore, each animal had its own lesson to impart on humans. These animals do tend to range from the real to fictional in order to reflect the diversity of the natural world given to use by God. And the origins can actually be traced even longer before the bestiary, potentially to a second century ancient Greek text called the... Physiologus. Thank you. Which described animals, trees, and rocks, and interpreted them as a reflection of Christianity. And this was actually built on by Isidore of Seville, who was the Archbishop of Seville during the 11th century with a text called the Etymologies. This would become one of the most popular encyclopedias during the early medieval period and covered over 250 animals and provided ample information regarding the, you know, etymology of word, hence the title. Etymologies also established a series of categories that would eventually be used by most bestiaries moving forward. So you have your land animals, your birds, your serpents, and your sea creatures. And bestiaries from the 12th century onwards would mostly take form of illuminated manuscripts where the text is actually accompanied by elaborate illustrations, which, look them up, they are fantastic in either really great ways or just really confusing ways. And I, I think we've actually touched upon bestiaries in the past. I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard not to, especially when you start talking about animals and how animals were perceived when you get to like the early medieval period because it, they did really you know strengthen it, well, not really strengthen it's not really the word because a lot of it was wrong but it did support current ideas of certain animals at the time especially the quote-unquote exotics that were being shipped in you know or seen and reported back by other people but ultimately the mundane as well, because what's with the snails? Oh, they love what's snails. All the, all the fighting snails, snails riding cats, cats riding snails into battle. I mean, I think that's its own thing. Like there's a there's something behind the snail obsession that 
I don't know if people have been able to academically reflect upon or critically analyze, but it's everywhere, isn't it? I'll give my unprofessional hot take. That okay. was just a monk doodling because he got bored <laughs> and then he just caught on. Just that one. Oh. You know, snails nowadays are pretty like in the in the zone of like, I don't know, memes. Like I definitely have seen like a gif of this like snail who gets like a jetpack and like flies away. And I've definitely seen like memes with snails. So I, I think there's actually something kind of there. I, do, do you know what I mean? Medieval I mean, meme. I think there's a modern appreciation of snails. And not just by the French. Are you sure it's not just the, the specific part of the internet that you... <laughs> what, like have? snail Twitter? Sorry, snail X. No, it's not. I'm not I'm not specifically interested in snails. I just know that, like, snails are, like, enjoyed, you know? Like, they're not like, they're not like dogs and cats. But, like, you know, there's... I think there's snail memes, okay? I'm just saying. There are snail memes. And all you're talking about is medieval memes, like Simona said. I mean, I've seen, I've seen snail memes, but out of illuminated manuscript snails. <sighs> okay, I will find these snail memes, okay? This will be a challenge I will readily accept, okay? There you go, listeners. Have you got any snail memes? Send them our way. We really need them, apparently. I mean, I guess if if we want to like actually think it through, you know, snails would snails are just things you 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 would see, commonly see on things. So maybe you were just like, I don't know, like if you were if I was a monk and I was like, okay, you gotta like draw our stuff and you know draw what you see, and I was just seeing snails all the time because they are kind of like everywhere depending on where you are, and I just get really good at drawing it. But the only thing that snails are going to ride into battle against is your cabbage, realistically. Well, I mean, I guess you're right. What if you get bored and you start just imagining things like, I don't know, snail going into battle with a little lance or something? I get it. There you go. That's my unprofessional hot take. Monk oh, like bored, we... draws snail, catches on, becomes a bit of a meme. I guess memos, something Latin sounding, make it a bit more high medieval. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, there were these weird ones, and obviously we will be covering some of the weird ones in this episode, but there's also, there's some that are, you know, actually not that far off, and obviously there is also creatures that were actually seen every day, so they're not as ridiculous as some of the, you know, animals from the African continent. So I guess really what a lot of these animals tend to look like is like either a person with four legs or like a variation of a dog or horse. Or maybe they were just trolling. Wow. Even like much, much later on, I think we've discussed mm. it on the show before, I think the 17th, 18th century depiction of cows as just rectangles with legs. <laughs> That's much later. You're just trolling. I guess, yeah. I mean, we do talk about this a lot on the show of like, you know, we always have these really interesting, complex interpretations for things that we find in the archaeological record. But there's also always the slight chance that sometimes it's just like someone just thought it was cool or someone was bored. And, you know, there's always a really good chance that happening because, you know, think about your own lives and the things you do out of boredom or because you think it's cool. So... Just yeah, someone having a laugh. I'm gonna draw this creature from my imagination. See how many people believe it. It's one guy who's just really into snails, and he's like, "Guess what? That's my thing now, and that's gonna be everyone else's thing moving forward." Pretty impressive. Anyway, so yeah, these are the sort of creatures that were illustrated in these maps and bestiaries. They are range from pretty on point to, as Simona said rectangles with legs, or even stranger and weirder. And again, they also kind of range from the mundane to the fantastical. So what I've done for this episode is we'll go through some examples and we'll talk about some examples of bestiaries and maps as well. But I've also added links, Simona, I'm sure you could see that, to 
different examples of these very interesting creatures, and I thought it might be interesting to just try and explain to the listening audience what we're looking at. Yes, uh, I must admit I have not opened them because I find the surprise is always best. So we'll be hearing, I mean, I've seen them, but it's it's been a while, so actually I'll be kind of reacting similarly. So you'll hear our first reactions to a lot of these on air. And whether or not we can do this without completely losing our minds, a la Simona finding out that Pokemon come from eggs, I'm not 100% sure, but we shall see. You're also forgetting <laughs> Simona reacts to Star Wars creatures. Ah, uh, yes, of course. This is a, We've really kind of tested the bounds of your sanity on this show, huh? <laughs> I don't mean to, but it's kind of funny, to be honest. And I guess special shout out to the British Library, the aforementioned J.P. Morgan Library, and the Hereford Cathedral for making so many medieval texts available online which is amazing. We'll probably put some links to it in the show notes. And also the British Library has some really gorgeous animations of some of the illustrations on YouTube. I highly recommend them. It's just really nice that it's really readily available to see online. So thanks for that. Especially as we said, a lot of these texts are extremely fragile. So it's pretty great to see them digitized in some way. On this note. I think we'll we'll prepare ourselves mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll start looking at some weirdos. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And we are back with Archeo Animals, episode 62. And we are talking about the animals and creatures of medieval maps and bestiaries and... We're going to start with what actually originally inspired this episode, which is the Hereford Map of Mundi. Uh, Simona, I feel like you should take it away because you are the person who originally kind of suggested this. Yeah, it's a medieval map of the world, hence Map of Mundi. The fact that it's called the Hereford Map of Mundi gives it away that it's in Hereford and it <laughs> is currently held at Hereford Cathedral. It dates back to about 1300 AD and is, as far as we know, the largest medieval map surviving. There was a larger one called the Ebstorf map, which was unfortunately destroyed during uh, Allied bombings during World War II in Hanover, Germany in 1943. The Hereford map of Mundi is a T and O map, as we mentioned earlier, you know, circle with a T within that covers Europe, Asia and North Africa, but also includes a plethora of myths and legends, such as the location of the Golden Fleece and the Cretan Labyrinth as well as locations which are mentioned in the Bible. So, for example, you have Eden, located in an island at the top, which is the east, if you remember, and the Tower of Babel. Babel? Babel? Babel. <laughs> foreign. Help. Babel? Babel? I think, I think it's Babel, because it's Babel fish in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, that's what I would have assumed. <laughs> I'd request assistance from native speakers. Well, I think you picked the wrong two speakers here. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Babel depends, like, if you went to some, somewhere posh. Like, oh, yes, that's the Tower of Babel. Yes, it's near Islington in London. <laughs> that was my best posh English accent. It's very Sorry. good. I'm it's very go good. Just wait till you hear my New Jersey one. And I'm going to mute. Yeah, for the, that's for the best. He's, he's, he's abruptly disappeared. That's good. All right. 
So, are you ready, Simona, for our first depiction of an animal? Are we ready to look at this? Yes, because also, by the way, like aside from all these weird and wonderful things, it also includes animals. So, the first one we'll be looking at is the camel. Really? So, yeah, I mean, it's not as spectacular as some of the other ones. It it looks like a border collie that's not doing very well. It is a bit of a, like I said, a lot of these depictions tend to either be horses or dogs or a combination of the two and i feel like this one's uh yeah it feels like like much of the bestiary animals like that the author sort of would be asked before they took on the jobs like oh so how many camels have you seen yes (laughs) (laughs) it's one of those things though where you're kind of just like when you look at it you kind of see that someone was clearly describing it as okay it has humps it's got four legs and then that's probably the extent of it it's got got hooves yeah which again would be a major red flag for a border collie so i can assume someone being like okay so i saw this animal it's we call it a camel now it's got these little lumpy things on its back it's got four legs it's got these little ears and it's like a horse so I can kind of see where I can see where the vision was going in this. So and, you know, we're going with Bactrian camel because it's got the two humps, which is interesting. To be honest, that you could at least identify it to that. <laughs> yeah, everything else is confused. Yeah, the, the ears. It's very. It's got a dog head. Yeah. It. it yeah, that's a dog. That's just a dog, isn't it? But yeah, it is actually in the text. I don't know if you can kind of see it in the red ink above it. It does say Bactria um, and the text. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Bactria Camelot. Camelot. Yeah. Bactria Camelot Aber. So it has has something. I have the actual translation on hand, don't worry. Well, well, to be fair, it's also really hard to read. You like... Luckily, if you go on mapamundi.co.uk and you look at the interactive map, they do provide text to kind of help out. It is actually really hard to read, but I am also cheating. Sorry to everyone, particularly my Latin professor. I mean, to be fair, like paleography, it's its own discipline and for very good reason. So yeah, the, the text accompanying this is illustration does actually help identify it as a Bactrian camel. And it says that Bactria in particular are very strong and never wear out their feet. Mm-hmm. Because the medieval camels in general were also viewed as long living creatures that could live for hundreds of years. Unless they're exported to a foreign land, because the air will make them ill and they'll die. Which, to be fair, like checks out. You take a camel and you take them to like Britain, where it's very wet and much colder. They're not gonna have a brilliant time. I mean, you could take an Alex to Britain when I first moved here, and I was so ill for two weeks. It was horrible. I was gonna so. make that joke and I, I refrained, and then but you, you did for me, so it's. Right. I did because cause it's real and it happened and I was really sick and my skin was the worst it's ever been when I first moved here. It was horrible. Do not recommend. Yes, I could have lived for hundreds of years, but then I moved abroad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the anxiety alone, let's be real. But yeah, so it should. we should also say that not only are the illustrations a bit wrong, but so are some of the beliefs about these animals. So the other things that medieval camels were believed to be able to do is they were, to be fair, this one's actually kind of accurate. They were noted for being able to go for at least three days without water. I actually don't know what the specifics of that are for camels, but it's I mean, not. I'm not sure, actually. But it's about, it's about right. You know, they are able to hold water in their homes, so that's fine. And they were known to have an appetite specifically for muddy water and would make clear water dirty with their feet. I actually don't know enough about camels to refute that. Uh, I mean, I can tell you that the last one is incredibly true, as it is for every species on the planet. You step in a river, a riverbed's made of silt. What are your legs going to do? Kick up the silt, you think? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. So, yes, anyway, it's very accurate. Should we get to our next one? Oh boy. So this is the lynx. Sure. <laughs> Simona, would you like to explain 
It looks like. Okay, so like I can see the the bottom half looking feline like. Yeah. I would have gone for lion over lynx, but you know, like, okay, that checks out. The tail is kinda liony. I mean lynxes do tend to be bobtailed for the most part, but that's fine. The head looks like a bat. Do you see anything in particular that may be a bit weird about the head? I mean, the the, the eyes are huge, but I get that. The eyes are huge, They they use their eyesight a lot. The nose is doing things as well. I'm not too sure what's going on with the nose. I mean, the best way I can explain is that it looks like Gonzo from the Muppets a little bit. But also like the teeth, because it looks like, you know, when someone... (laughs) I don't know, when a child is trying to draw, like, you know, a human face of someone smiling and they'll just, like, do the mouth and the opening and then just put a line in the middle with lots of vertical lines and that's your teeth. Yeah. It's just that. So, some explanation. They got massive eyes because lynxes, lynxes were known for their keen eyesight and the accompanying text actually says that they could see through walls. However, lynx were also believed to forget what they have seen immediately once it looks away. Now, the other thing, which we haven't mentioned because it's not that noticeable, but the text in this manuscript also says that lynxes can urinate black stones, which is depicted helpfully under the lynx that we're looking at right now. You see that like little black circle? Yeah. Yeah. So in general, medieval lynxes were believed to be able to urinate precious stones, although it is sometimes described as flame-colored in other texts. So they would hide their urine with sand in order to hide these stones. <laughs> to be fair, like, I can see why they would have thought that, because yeah. think of your box standard domestic cat sort of digging up and covering up their things in the litter tray. So I get that. Precious stones? I mean... I guess the idea is that people never really got close enough to see what they were actually kicking up, and obviously they would just find pee. So, you know. <laughs> I also would like to see. I would like to know how they tested the hypothesis that they can see through walls. Did they randomly just nick one from the wild, bring it to a castle, and then just someone stood on the other side of the wall? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the kind of scientific rigor that these kind of images went through, to be honest. Now, the other thing, and it's hard to tell from this image, but apparently a lot of other medieval lynxes were always depicted as very wolf-like, except they often had spots on their backs. I don't know what that means. (laughs) I guess that checks out for lynxes, because a few of them, sort of like their coat colour, they do have sort of spotty. True. But no, I do apologise. They're like, it's starting to turn very quickly into like, Simona, this is medieval bestiaries. It's all out of love. (laughs) I do truly love these maps and bestiaries. It's just like, what? It's all for comedic effect. It's jest. Yeah. So we'll we'll go from this map to kind of the other maps we just talked about, which are the ones that actually kind of deal with the sea. So they obviously illustrate sea creatures. So if we want to go to serpents, this is... The one we're looking at right now is from the Carta Marina, and it depicts a serpent called the Sea Orm or the Great Norway Serpent. Okay. I mean... Nice to meet you, Orm. You're a big I mean, that's boy. A, that's a worm. It's a worm with a with like a, a, a dog head, right? <laughs> yeah, it does look quite wolf-like. Because almost, like, I guess, some of the um, scales right next to the mouth would almost look like they're drawing, like, fur, so, like, in the, the neck fluff in a wolf. I mean, yeah, like I said, I think you can really kind of make a category of medieval depictions that just kind of look like they put a, a dog or wolf head on something. Not animal-related at all, but I'm focusing to, like, I don't know, something to the northeast. Oh, no, I guess, no, that wouldn't be the northeast, because east is at the top. Oh, but oh no! Right <laughs> to the southeast, there's an etchest horrenda. Just, just something <laughs> awful there, and I want to know what it is. Etchest horrenda cariptis. Cariptis. I mean, that's a big fish. That's like a little. That's a weird looking fish. <laughs> it's horrendous. <laughs> okay, back to back to Orma. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a worm red boy. 
He is a, a warm red boy. Probably the most common sea monster found on medieval maps. And, you know, the sea serpents such as the sea orm were reportedly encountered by sailors whose descriptions would inform these illustrations. Now, I did say this was just a worm with a dog head, but they were actually often described as worm-like and hundreds of feet in length and able to wrap themselves around ships to destroy them. And unlike land serpents, sea serpents had really hard, rough heads with no feet or fins. So they were literally just worms in the water. As you do. Snakes don't have feet or fins. No question. I mean, they don't. But like, I don't know. I guess you some sea serpents, I feel like, in other contexts, will have like little fin things. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to something else that's not worm-like, kind of, which are sirens. And this one's from the Theatrum Orbis Terrarum. I did it. I'm proud of you. Oh, yeah. and I mean, this is yeah. They're, they're naked. Oh no. Yeah. So for listeners at home, the uh, the sirens we're looking at, they've kind of I guess they've put the tail kind of in a place where, I mean, it's in the I right expect, place. But no, because but normally, like in I guess at least contemporary depictions of sirens it tends to be just just below the belly button yeah but this we can see a butt so oh no yeah yeah medieval siren yeah. butt interesting scandalous yeah now they're originally depicted as half woman half bird but later on mainly depicted as half woman half fish although some depictions actually kind of split the difference and combine the two with bird feet and fish tails as many of you might know sirens were in folklore were seen as dangerous for sailors as they charm them with their singing and then they murder them which is fun big mood i guess <laughs> Some other folklore include that sirens only sing during storms and weep when the skies are clear, which is also a big mood. And another says that a sailor can escape a siren by throwing an empty bottle, which will distract them as they will play with it. Also big mood. Other big mood. It seems like sirens are all of the moods. They are sometimes depicted with mirrors to illustrate their vanity. Yes, you, you love yourself, siren. You do you. <laughs> So overall, this was, of course, in the context of the time, viewed as an allegory for selling one's soul to the devil for worldly pleasures. Of course. Now, I think we're going to go to potentially the most hotly anticipated one within, <laughs> like, our our podcast group chat. Let's talk about the sea pig, Simona. Yes, let's, as depicted, the carta marida. Oh, look at the sea pig. <laughs> I, I'm expecting a lot of fan art. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey Simona, what does it look like? What does it look like, Simona? What kind of ball? So I guess they're kind of half right. Why has it got eyes on the side? You know what? I didn't even notice that the first time I put this on the show notes, and now I'm like, oh, how did I miss that? <laughs> okay. So for reference, everyone, because not not everyone would have heard of the sea pig but a sea pig is actually a small creature that lives deep down in the sea floor okay it doesn't look much like an actual pig how do you describe a sea pig it's not what the sea pig looks like on the map i mean it's quite pink i guess not unlike sort of how you sort of picture a pig this might have broke your brain just but yeah so the sea pig is a small creature that sort of yeah is found at the bottom sort of deep down on the seafloor it's the things in common it has in common with the pig it's i guess just that it's pink in color like you would normally picture domestic pigs like commercial farmed pigs to look like Look it up. I just I can't describe it. But what we're looking at here in this medieval map is a bona fide pig, or boar, I guess, with a fish's body that's got eyes on it, but also webbed feet. So, yeah, see pig. 
It's probably related to what is now called the deep water sea cucumber. Scotoplanus species. But its name and depiction likely is based on Pliny the Elder, our fave. His theory that every land animal had an aquatic equivalent. So, sea pig. And obviously, uses an allegory, of course it is, for deceitful heretics who lived as swine. And apparently they look like that. So I think we'll go to a break while Simona's getting over this. I didn't realize how much psychic damage this would do. And we'll get back to you when, when we've calmed down. And we're back with Archeo Animals. This is episode 62, The Creatures of Medieval Maps and Bestiaries. And right before we hit up the bestiaries, we will take a look at one last sea creature, the Ichthyocentaur? Yes. Yeah. He's living his best life. I mean, dude's rock, you know? Like, there's a lot going on that, I, again, I didn't notice the first time. Like, I just noticed now he's got, like, chicken claws or something at the front. Yeah, so I guess he's got, like, two sets of arms. He's got his human arms. And then when the, <laughs> I guess, the animal sort of body starts from the waist down, he's also got some talons. And then the rest of him is sort of sea serpent-like, but he's got a wonderful garland of nice greenery on his head, and he's playing a viola or something. For reference, this is depicted in the Theatrum Orbis Terrarum map, which is near Scandinavia, I'd say. And yes, he is playing a viol, viol, a 16th century string instrument. So as we kind of implied, ichthyocentaurs, and I guess as the name implies, they were hybrid creatures consisting of the upper half of a human, the lower half of a horse, which to be fair, I don't think the example we're looking at really... It's not really a horse, is it? It's kind of like a, like I said, it's like a chicken or something. And a fishtail. And they were also considered tritons or mermen in ancient Greek and Roman mythologies. And well, it's in the name because, I mean, it's a centaur, but of the yeah. sea. Yeah, I guess so. And as map indicators, the ichthyocentaur was viewed as a peaceful creature and potentially indicated pa- places of safe passage. As we said, it just looks like a chill dude, which is, I guess, nice in comparison to some of the other ones that we will be looking at as we move on to some of the, the valiant, if not completely ridiculous, attempts at depicting animals within medieval bestiaries. Although we won't be going too far away from the sea because our first one is a whale. Right. And I mean, it's a fish. It's a fish. It's a big fish. And I mean, if you explain what a whale is to someone, I guess you would just be like, oh, it's a big fish, right? Although I'm more interested in this figurehead on the ship. Uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> the figure, to be fair, like, it doesn't look that the similar sort of for the figureheads that you see sort of in, I guess, popular culture depictions of sort of like Scandinavian ships. Yeah, yeah, true. It's just, I don't know, it's kind of funny the way it looks like. But the ver- the depiction of a whale we're looking at actually depicts what was apparently the very common occurrence of sailors mistaking a whale, a balua here specifically, for an island and trying to make camp on its back before getting thrown off after making a fire. Ain't that just something we can all relate to, folks? Only on Tuesdays. Yeah. This was unsurprisingly an allegory for the devil deceiving people. And let's be real, you for most of these, you can kind of assume they're all allegories for the devil deceiving people. So like they've got this camp set up. So they've got the ship that's sort of well, not parked, docked on the way. <laughs> yeah. But then they also they got a fire going with what seems like it was probably going to be a lovely stew. Yes. But what's the right of them? Have they put some flowers down or something? Just give, give, give it a dash of colour. I was trying to think, and I'm thinking either it's it's kind of like just like sea flora that would be on there, or even just maybe like a weird depiction of barnacles. Or when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, is that supposed to be like the water coming out of its blowhole? But in two different places. I mean, it's also a big fish and they're saying it's a whale. So, you know, we're not really going for accuracy here, are we? To be fair, that's the case for most of medieval bestiaries. I mean, yeah. you find that whales are mostly ju- just big fish. Also, uh, just notice it's got a mouthful of fish as well. <laughs> yeah, just, just having its dinner. And then, you know, like, don't you hate it when you're trying to have your dinner and someone just docks their ship on you and tries to set up camp and cook a stew on your back? 
Oh, actually, I can answer that question you had about what those things were with my next note that I meant to say, which is that, you know, whales were just big fish to authors of medieval bestiaries, and they be- were believed to be able to emit a sweet odor to attract fish for eating. So that's what you're looking at. It's supposed to be showing the odor coming off of the whale. I see. Uh, they weren't so ridiculous after all, huh? Uh, they got me. Yeah, let's see how smart they are when we go to dragons and, I guess, technically elephants. Right, which I guess is as good an excuse as any to talk about this incredible illustration. It's one of the best. It's so good. So it's a dragon fighting an elephant, as they often do, on Thursdays. Yes. (laughs) It's so good, right? Like, (laughs) it's so good. It's I don't know what's the best part. The, the 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 position they're in, the face that the elephant's making of just like, gosh, not again. Like just everything about it, it's perfect. I kinda wanna get this tattooed on me. It's so funny. It just like it seems like one of those like this sounded better in my head. Yeah. So basically this depiction is showing how one of the only things that could conceivably take on a dragon was an elephant, apparently. Dragons would ambush an elephant by attacking their legs and suffocating them. And the elephant is just not having it. It's got the most despondent look on his face. <laughs> it's just, I, I am that elephant. Oh, we it's all just, are that elephant. Just there, like, just why? Dude, why? Dude, stop. <laughs> So dragons are often depicted as basically giant serpents with legs and wings, and again, unsurprisingly, could sometimes be an allegory for the devil. Strangely enough, they would actually rarely be shown breathing fire. So, I guess in a way, that probably came quite a bit later, didn't it? Yeah, and elephants were unsurprisingly drawn likely based on word of mouth. So emphasis was placed on the big ears, the long trunk, and the huge tusks, which, I mean, yeah, that makes an elephant, I guess, the main parts of an elephant. To be fair, as far as elephants go, you know, compared to, like, the camel that we were looking at earlier, or, or the, the this is pretty realistic in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, there's some other beliefs about elephants that weren't as you know, entirely realistic. So elephants were believed to have no knee joints. So medieval people believed that if you made an elephant fall down, it would not be able to get up. Also, their skin and their bones could be burned to drive away serpents, and they could live for up to 300 years. Unless they go to a foreign land. Yeah, of course, of course. But that is... That is what people believed. We'll find another enemy of the dragon... As a, the very nonplussed elephant, we also have the panther, which in this depiction is leaving its cave after three days, specifically, and emitting a sweet-smelling odour, which seems to be a trend here, while roaring and causing a dragon to hide deep in the earth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are the shoots no. coming out of its mouth the roar or the odour? I think it's the odour. I think it could be two things, actually. <laughs> the dragon just, yeah, dragon's done. It's just done. Do you see the blue one that's, like, right to the right of, th- that's me. It's just got, like, a strip human face. <laughs> so, the, yes, so some have got dog faces. The one right at the top, I could buy that as feline. It could buy a sort of tiger-like. And then, yeah, and then it's a dog, and then it's a person with little ears. <laughs> 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 So panthers were actually seen as gentle creatures that would immediately hibernate in a cave for three days after eating. Afterwards, they would leave the cave, roar out this very sweet smell, which attracts the other animals, except for dragons, which are obviously scared of panthers. Duh. And boy, would you know that this is an allegory for Jesus Christ, who was able to repel the dragon, a.k.a. the devil, and draw all animals and humans to him. And he also went into a cave for a bit before returning to the world. Ah, so, yeah, <laughs> logic. It's the, three, it's the three days specifically. Yeah, no, the logic's there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've heard worse logic. It, it kind of makes sense. Okay. Now, the next one is, you know, I feel like we can't really talk about bestiaries, particularly medieval bestiaries, without talking about a unicorn. 
And the image we're looking at depicts a virgin tricking a unicorn into laying its head on her lap so that the nearby hunter can kill it. That's not very which nice. Is, I mean, it's also an allegory for the vulnerability of Jesus while Mary was still pregnant with him. How? Obviously. Obviously. It looks like a small hippo. It, you know what? It does look like a hippo. Or like a tapir thing. It's, yeah, it's... Okay, so, folks, it's, it's not really a horse we're looking at with a horn. It's more like, yeah, it's like a tapir or something with a, with a horn, again. So, you know, that point is accurate, but it's not very majestic looking. Mm. Like, I kind of don't blame the hunter for wanting to to get that thing. It's not nice to look at, actually. And um, to be fair, they would also get them because their horns were prized for their power to purify water, apparently. And also, you know, they were actually considered, although we, you know, today we consider your unicorns to be beautiful, pure fantasy creatures. Medieval times, they're actually known to be incredibly dangerous animals. So... The reason why this image we're looking at depicts a virgin tricking the unicorn so that a nearby hunter can kill it is because that's what a lot of bestiaries utilize unicorns for, to kind of describe the clever ways in which you could slay them. Again, usually involving a virgin woman because they they just attract unicorns, obviously. Duh. Okay. <laughs> but despite being vicious creatures, unicorns were also used as an allegory for Jesus Christ. Which is very... Weird, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, like we're, I don't, we're not going to get into you know uh, theological debate, but it, it just seems like a an odd thing. And the other thing is that in series they were either horse-like, like we would imagine unicorns today, or they were more goat-like. And let's be honest, neither of those things are depicted in the image we're looking at. <laughs> that's not a goat. No. No, I don't that, know what that like, is. Like a, ta- a tapia tap type thing, hippo. Yeah. Well, well, we'll move on to something a bit more normal and definitely very accurate, which is a crocodile. Now, Simone, I want you to look at these images and try to figure out which one's the crocodile. Okay. Yeah. I want to mm-hmm. know what's the one on the right, because I'm pretty sure that's not it. I think the one that's eating something, that's basically a, a dog with talons and a weird sort of spiny back and tail i think that might be our crocodile the red the red thing yes so actually so the thing on the right is actually a hydra sure the thing on the left is indeed a crocodile even though it looks like a red dog so it's actually eating a hydra's winged snake which is as you might be able to see is actually escaping out of its belly so there's a lot going on well, there'd be a dragon because it was very worm-like with wings, and then the depiction of the panthers carrying away the dragon—it looked very much like a worm with wings. So, was that also a hydra, or was it a dragon masquerading as a hydra? I, th- I mean, I think consistency isn't really the most pressing. You know, remember thing. the remember the camels masquerading as elephants. This is true. Yes, I guess there is precedence for this. So you're right. I apologize. For those who are not aware, the camels masquerading as elephants is in our previous episode on animals in warfare. You'll have a great time. Check it out. (laughs) So the depictions of crocodiles were so wildly inconsistent to the point that the only consistent thing about them was that they would depict the crocodile having four legs. For some reason, they were almost always either shown as either a dog or a lion, and sometimes the head would be upside down. So, I mean, you can get that, because so like, it was known as being the only animal that can move the upper part of his jaw while keeping the lower part still. So that might be why his head was depicted upside down. Yeah, it was also known for his hard outer skin, which is not exactly portrayed in this particular example, but you know. Yeah, which could repel rocks. And it was also, as you said, it was, you know, the only animal that could move the upper part of its jaw while keeping the lower part still. So there was some accuracy there, I guess. Of course, uh, what may not be as 
accurate is the idea that only two animals could kill a crocodile, a sawfish, also known as, as a serra, and a hydrus, because both of them could kill it from the inside. Do you think they also release a sweet-smelling odour? I mean, here's the thing, though. Maybe, but the crocodile's dung was known to be a beauty enhancer. So, you know. And the other thing about crocodiles that everyone knew in the medieval period was that it always cried after killing a human being. Well, like, do you, do you have the expression crocodile tears? Yes. Okay. So I guess something like that. That's where it might come from, crocodile tears? I guess, yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, as we reach the end of the episode, I do want to end on, you know, a very familiar creature to all of us that we all know about, and it's probably very accurately depicted in this beast, Jerry, which is the Bonacon. Oh, uh... So, Simona, what you're looking at is a Bonacon spraying poop on some soldiers. It's very straightforward. I mean, it's it's a good defense mechanism. Like, you're going to confuse the heck out of them and that will give you your opening to run away like it's a sound tactic if it wasn't for the fact that they'd already put a spear through its neck yeah it's a bit last minute isn't it but you know he almost got away with it yeah so it's a mythical creature also known as the bonesis or the Bonacho, uh, taken from the Greek bonassos, which means bison. Unsurprisingly, it's often depicted as a bull or a bison-like creature with a horse's mane. Now, its curled horns make it incredibly vulnerable to attack, so its defense mechanism is to poop on its enemies. And when I say poop, I mean it's a huge fecal spray of about three acres that causes burns. Again, big mood. That's a sound defense tactic. You will confuse the enemy, and that, that, that gives you the opening that you need to either counterattack or run away. Yeah, real lactose intolerance mood there. <laughs> I uh, guess oversharing is a good place to stop this episode, huh? <laughs> Possibly. So as always, you can find us online at the Archaeology Podcast Network website or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on, it's not Twitter anymore, it's called X, so you can find us there at Animals for as long as that website exists. Let us know about any other episodes. Uh, tell your friends about us, subscribe, like, all that other fun stuff. I'm going to think about my life choices after that one. Anything else you want to do, Simona? Uh, just... Just go reflect on the sea pig. Yeah, I do like that sea pig. See you next time, folks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.